0: This is the THORN Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at THORN and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of THORN. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Thorn Podcast. Joining me this week is Dr. Nathan Price, the Chief Scientific Officer at Thorne Health Tech, the CEO of Longevity prior to its merger with Thorne, uh, more on that later, and a researcher who is named one of the top 10 emerging leaders in health and medicine by the National Academy of Medicine. How you doing, Nathan?
1: I'm doing great. Uh, wonderful to be with you, Bob. appreciate
0: it. Yeah, yeah. I'm you. really looking forward to, to actually having a little time to chat. I'm wondering uh, if you can tell people who the heck you are. Um, you know, I know we could talk about your resume for a couple of hours, uh, but maybe you could just give people a little bit of an overview and then tell us, Kind of how you got involved with Thorne.
1: Yeah, happy to. Um, so I'm a scientist uh, and I try to be an entrepreneurial scientist. I'm very interested at the interface of what can we learn and how do we translate it to society. And that's a, that's a long time interest of mine fact, the, uh, you know, the quote of mine in my high school yearbook is what I, what I want to do in the future is invent something and start a company. You know? <laughs> <And so, laughs> i have always been interested in science and business for a long time. And so it's uh, kind of interesting uh, from that perspective. So in terms of my background, I have a PhD in bioengineering, uh, which I did on building what are called genome scale metabolic models, big computer models of wh- how do you take nutrients that you take into your body and how to Do all those biochemical processes work to create you? Uh, So that's been a a long-term interest of mine. I was professor and associate director of the Institute for Systems Biology for about a decade. Uh, And there, in the last few years I was there, I had a really interesting opportunity. Uh, Lee Hood, who had been my mentor as a postdoc, uh, and then I'd gone back to ISB after a stint as an assistant professor at the University of Illinois in Urbana, basically came to me with the proposition of merging our lab groups together. We had become both very interested in this area that we call scientific wellness, or you could call it precision health. We'll talk a lot more about that. And so we uh, ran a joint lab, the Hood Price Lab for Systems Biomedicine there, started a company at that time. Uh, We co-founded a company called Aravale together. And through those efforts, we analyzed huge data sets on about 5,000 people where we had genomes and microbiomes and metabolomes and proteomes and Uh, information about what people were doing in their health, working with health coaches, you know, up to on a weekly basis, uh, at least monthly. And so we had this wealth of data and I got really interested in not just what do you do after disease? We Mm. had, had a whole bunch of papers, I know 100 papers maybe in systems medicine, but got much more interested in how do we stop disease before it starts? And what signals are there in the body that tell us that something is gonna happen? How far can we push that? And so I became very interested in that as a topic. And about a year and a half ago, I got a call from Paul Jacobson, who's the CEO of Thorn, with an interesting proposition, which was to come on, be you know, become ultimately the CEO of Longevity, but really to fold all of this together. And you know, I, I still remember what he said to me. It's like, he just said, you know, when he reached out, I'll just share this because I was planning to say no to him. Oh. And <laughs> You know, I, I was very happy, right? I had this great yeah. job. I was, you know, we were doing this and I had this whole, you know, I was I was very excited about what Thorne was doing. We had done a little bit in terms of a joint venture, but I had a million things go. I was going to about to say, you know, we're doing all these studies. We've got, you know, I'm in the process of starting three different companies and we're going to do, you know, I have 12 clinical trials and, you know, that I just had this whole litany of things that I, you know, was going to go through. Paul kind of short-circuited me right off the bat and said, said you know the problem with all you academics says you want to have your hands in a million different things and you can't see the one huge opportunity that is staring you in the face (laughs) (laughs) and he said if you really want to take all these things you're doing in scientific wellness all this science that you're doing you want to make it really have impact in the world says you've got to tie this all up into one thing
0: Hmm. he says
1: you come he says i'll run business and you do science and we'll build the greatest healthy aging company in the history of the world And I walked away from the call and I thought, I should probably listen to this and
0: think (laughs) about (laughs) it. So so that's how I got involved with Thorne. Yeah, wow. Well, fortunate for us. Um, And uh, it it seems like the whole team that Paul Jacobson has put together is pretty amazing. I think you'd agree with that.
1: Absolutely, so many great people that have been engaged. And I feel like I'm still meeting amazing people across all the different uh, uh, buckets that go into uh, Thorn Health Tech, which I guess we'll talk about, about a little bit more. Um, sure. Yeah. No, it's an incredible team across uh, many, many different uh, areas for sure.
0: So it seems like this uh, this interest in preventive medicine and really ad- it's advanced preventive medicine. I and mean, you know, and in, in the mainstream, when they talk about preventive medicine, they're basically talking about mammograms and you know colonoscopies mm-hmm. and things like that, which is not. Really, what you're getting at—you're getting at being able to pick up on early signs that something is wrong. Right. Correct with that.
1: Yes. And so I exactly, and it's really about having a different focus because if we think about healthcare in the world, uh, and you know a lot of people say this, so this has you know become kind of a common phrase, but it's true, which is that healthcare today is really disease care. Most of medicine today is wait until you have a significant problem and then diagnose a drug and give it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I don't need to belabor this point. We all have ourselves or friends or so forth who have literally got into the doctor, explained what they're starting to have an issue with and been told, you know, come back when these symptoms are really serious and I will give you, you know, so I can prescribe the drug. And so the whole notion and Lee Hood and I actually writing a book on this will come out next year. Actually, it's written. It's just a review now. Great. Um, But essentially is about how do we have a wellness-centric view where our whole mindset is not, I'm going to wait till I have some serious problem and you know, where I can justify the side effects of a drug, but rather, how do I improve, enhance, extend health span? Uh, how do I stay healthy for longer and you know vibrant and energetic and all those kind of things? And how do we do that in a sense that we have a focus on health, that is proactive at looking at initially small deviations that can probably be corrected easily, rather than waiting until we have significant deficiencies that are very hard, if not impossible, to put back together.
0: And you, you mentioned a word that I want to key in on for our listeners, which was health span. And I'm wondering, since we want to focus during this particular segment on healthy aging, maybe you can distinguish health span versus lifespan and why researchers, scientists think that that's an important distinction.
1: So lifespan is pretty obvious, right? How long do you stay alive? And there's a lot of debate in the scientific community about whether or not lifespan can be pushed out
0: a lot. Can we be 150, live to be 150?
1: 150, can we be 300, Five? you know, you know those kind of things, right? And we all laugh because no one's made it that far, right? So far, as far as we know.
0: Unless you're a turtle or a sh- certain sharks, I guess.
1: Yeah, but turtles, certain tur- but uh, And so there are all these tantalizing examples where we can extend lifespan in animal models and sometimes pretty significantly. So there's all kinds of, anyway, without getting all into that, there are questions about that, but what's ultimately what you can do in lifespan? Now, the flip side is if you talk to someone about even extending lifespan, a lot of people will say, oh, I don't want that. <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: <And> why? <laughs> it's because you have this model in your head I'm going to get old and frail, my mind's gonna go, and I don't want to list, you know, I don't want to drag out for years. And actually, I'm very much in that camp. Who would want? It? And you know we could get into into all that, right? Yeah. But health span is something that is, I think, hard to be controversial. It is what is the length of time that you have a healthy, enjoyable, vibrant life? And we know for a fact that you can extend health span significantly. And you can do so through very simple things. Exercise extends your health span massively. Good diet extends it. Uh, There are different compounds, which I'm sure we'll talk about, that have been shown to extend health span in animal models and so forth. And so it's really about just how do you take that health that is the cornerstone for a good life, and how do you make that last as long as you can?
0: So this kind of brings up the million-dollar question, which is Is this is health span mainly a result of what we do, or is there an underlying program in our cells that affects aging that's more important? Yeah, Uh, you know, is is are we kind of stuck with our genes, or you know, what about lifestyle? How does that all? What does nature and nurture have to do with the whole process?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a combination of both. But health span for most people is very modifiable and so for the majority of us lifestyle is going to be the bigger component but they do have interesting interplay so for example a study that uh, that we did a few years ago we published this in scientific reports in 2019 showed that we were looking at people who were going through a wellness program right so trying to get better or right? it was the one we used to run and as they were doing that we actually looked at genetic signatures In this case for whether or not a person was likely to have high LDL cholesterol, the so-called bad cholesterol, uh, or HDL cholesterol, so-called good cholesterol. And it turned out that if we monitored people going through a lifestyle program and whether or not they were able to lower LDL cholesterol, the genetic signature predicted who would succeed at that and who would not. And the top 40 percent of people, so a big number, were not able or did not in our study show a statistically significant ability to lower LDL cholesterol, where the bottom 40% did very significantly. And by top and bottom, what I'm talking about is you can actually build a prediction model off of the genome for the level of a biomarker associated with health. And then you can take the difference or the delta, as I'm an engineer, so we call these deltas, but, you know, so if you take this delta... It turns out that the difference between your actual measure and the genomic predictor is a big sign of whether that biomarker is easily movable or not. And so what you can do, in fact, is build a a plan or a, a guidepost for people that says, what are all the biomarkers associated with health where you deviate the most from your genetic prediction? It tells you where you're having a big impact from lifestyle and these are the things you're most likely to be able to change via lifestyle. And so there is this really interesting interplay, and I actually think that the delta between your genomic prediction and your actual value is a whole new category that needs to be implemented across medicine because right now we take the measurements of somebody on all these standard clinical labs in the absence of the genome. So we do not know today in most, you know, 99 percent of you know, of practices. What if that high value is driven by the genome or by lifestyle? And it's hugely important in terms of how modifiable it is. Anyway, so we can, you know, there's a lot around that that's super fascinating.
0: What about something like blood sugar? And I, and I bring that up because some people will assert that the genes that are involved in in insulin signaling and, you know, how your body handles blood sugar are the most important ones to consider when it comes to aging you know alzheimer's is diabetes of the brain that kind of thing and and animals that are or even worms that have genes that allow them to handle glucose better live longer so would what you say saying apply to that um how yeah does that fit in well and i'll i'll actually
1: i'll give you two pieces of evidence sort of on each side because it you know again it comes down to um you know, to the kind of the fraction of, of impact. So your genes definitely do matter and they'll matter a lot, certainly for certain biomarkers you might find. So if you look at something like hemoglobin A1C, which is a, you know, for our listeners is a marker that's commonly used for diabetes. Just, it looks at the glycation or the, you know, the, the small sugar so that get put on the outside of the protein. It's and your
0: average blood sugar over time.
1: Your average blood sugar over time, basically. But there are genetics that are associated with residence time of red blood cells. So how long in your body? So some people, they're going to last about 120 days. Some people, that might be longer, 130, 140. And so the longer that they have residence time, the more time they have to accumulate glycosylations. We're actually doing a clinical trial on this. So the way you interpret that measure is, again, influenced by something in the genetics, which, again, is not done today. So there are all kinds of things that you can look at that way. Now, the counter argument to genetics being the primary driver of sugar issues is that we are experiencing a epidemic of things like diabetes and obesity, and the human population's genome didn't radically change over the last 30 years.
0: (laughs) We don't have new genes. We don't have new
1: genes. We have new environment. And yeah. the environment has caused an epidemic. So, so the argument against genes being the whole story is pretty strong. Yeah. So it's not the whole story. It plays a role. There's no doubt about that. But it's really the the gene by environment interaction that always is the. You know, it's kind of always the answer. Is it somewhere in there? and just a fraction. You know, which one is stronger?
0: Well, you and I've uh, have already talked about this offline, but you know, there's a lot of excitement these days about these epigenetic clocks that. That tell you um, supposedly what your real age is, as opposed to the age that you might determine by measuring your blood sugar or your weight or your blood pressure or things like that. And it seems like the problem that you and I were talking about with these epigenetic clocks is they don't necessarily reflect how you're living right there. You know, they, they seem to be a whole independent phenomenon.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating. So the epigenetic clocks, a lot of people are interested in them. Uh, they were discovered initially, and, and uh, a lot of work has been led by Steve Horvath as uh, a terrific scientist down at UCLA, um, who I've known for a, for a while. And so these epigenetic clocks are fascinating, uh, and so I'm a big fan of them from the standpoint of you know what we what we might be able to learn as we go down that route. We do have a biological age test at Thorne, as you know. And we don't base it on epigenetics. We base it on a set of clinical markers. And the reason we do that, uh, and there's actually papers published, uh, including by, by uh, Steve Horvath and another just very top aging researcher, uh, Morgan Levine at Yale, you know, that go into this and do a comparison. And the biological age from clinical labs today is more associated with health outcomes, uh, with incidence of disease, and so forth, than our uh, biological age is based on epigenetics. Mm-hmm. So we use those because they're more uh, predictive of health outcome today.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because they've been studied for so long, every one of them gives us very specific actionable items of something we can do mm-hmm. that we don't yet have around epigenetics. So mm-hmm. I love epigenetics from a science point of view. You know I think it's fascinating. Uh, if people want to do a test on it, go for it. You know, I think. Right? But we like uh, primarily the clinical lab test just because it's more health actionable, more predictive of health today.
0: I just want to point something out about the biological age test that Doran offers, which is the first time I looked at it, I thought, well, this is what I'm already measuring in clinical practice, you know, a chemistry profile, blood sugar, things like that. That seemed fairly basic. And then I talked to you about how you arrived at that. And it turns out you arrived at that from computing huge amounts of data, right? So it wasn't like you just said, hey, I think a chemistry profile would be a good thing. You know, this was what you came up with after looking at thousands of patients.
1: Yeah, we initially did this study on about 3,500 individuals, and we measured 1,200 different analytes out out of the blood. And you can derive biological age on a wide variety of different sources. And you do get a bit of a different answer, depending on the one that you do, and you're getting different information. So we looked at metabolites, we looked at proteins, we looked at clinical labs, uh, the ones we ended up going with. And so we did go in there and we were able to show that even when we reduced down to this set, I think ultimately of 36 different markers, that we could keep 90 95% of the information that we got from the 1200 in terms of being able to predict health outcomes which is what we really cared about in terms of its relationship to disease and also whether or not if you were taking action that would improve your health you would see it go down
0: mm-hmm. and when we
1: did that initial study what we saw was that over the course of the years we ran that study and we ran it people came in and out at different times so it was a total of 4 years but you know each individual length was was different into there but what we saw was that we saw an improvement in biological age of, of 1.16 years per year in the program. By improvement, I mean the, the difference between the biological age and the chronologic age. Uh, the way we developed uh, the test, this is also important. It uses something called the Clamera de Ball algorithm. And I won't go into the details of that, but it has one important property, which is that it forces the algorithm to learn a biological age, such that the expectation is that on average, people will go up by one year per year. And so the reason that that is really important is that it it gives you a measure that you can look at longitudinally. You can monitor it year over year. So when we did that, we saw that women did particularly well. They were getting better at a rate of one and a half years per year during the years on that program. Uh, men were getting better at 0.8 years per year, meaning they were aging 0.2 years per year by the biological age. Uh, women were actually doing better; they were getting a little bit biologically younger according to the clock. And so, when we look at those kind of things, you know, that gave us some confidence in the test because we saw that positive, you know, ages, positive delta ages, so your biological age being higher than your chronologic age was associated with diseases, higher incidence of disease. And people going through trying to improve their health were able to improve this score. Uh, Now, you can't improve it forever, right? And the the lower your biological age is compared to your chronologic age, the harder it is to keep pushing it down, right? You can't push it down forever, Uh, but you can have a positive impact on it and you can watch it. And so even though we we now use the pretty standard clinical labs uh, with a couple of extra things in there, like DHEA, which gives us a, a view into hormone health, those... run through a very different kind of algorithm so it focuses more on where are you at compared to you know where you might want to be for your you know your age and your sex and those kind of things
0: and just to point uh so i think this is a fabulous information and just to point the obvious we know that if you get a room full of people who are all the exact same chronological age you see huge differences right that you know, some people look like they're sixty, some people look like they're fifty, some people look like they're seventy. So there's clearly huge differences from person to person. In terms of what's really going on, and that's what we call biological age, right? Which is, well, what's the age of your, your body, your organs, your tissues, as opposed to your date of birth? Exactly. And I think what you're saying from being able to look at these simple markers instead of 1,200, you know, you use 30, did you say 35, 36 markers? And then you can tell people to do these basic things, you know, to exercise more, lower their blood sugar, you know, take care of their liver, really basic things. And that changes their biological age. So we can't change their chronological age, but we can decrease at least the rate at which they're aging biologically. And that's profound. Absolutely. That's profound.
1: And one of the things I love about biological age is that it is an example of what we call a a metric for wellness. So mm-hmm. we would like to have tests that aren't just "Do I have this disease? Do I not have this disease?" Mm-hmm. What are tests where you can focus on getting a more a better score, yeah. uh, a, an improvement in health? And so this is a kind of a first version of that. But I love the notion of having a sense in your body. You know, are you clearing senescent cells well, mm-hmm. uh, which are the big hallmarks of aging? Are you dealing well with oxidative stress? You know, which is another big element. You know, do you, do you clear uh, you know, is your immune system on high alert all the time, or, you know, do you have chronic inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. And so having just insight on all those different processes and what you can do either through lifestyle recommendations uh, or you know, when when appropriate uh, targeted interventions of the kind that we might do from Thorne. And so there's a, a whole host of steps that you can take to just look at where, where you're at, what's going right, and where could you use some, some
0: benefit. Wonderful. Well, let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll answer some questions that have come in from the community. So I think we can get a little bit more specific you know, about where we go with all this information. Although getting older is inevitable, you can control how well you age and Thorne offers a variety of solutions to help you do just that. Thorne's biological age test utilizes a blood panel that analyzes the rate of aging for your entire body and its various organs and provides specific recommendations to help you slow or improve the aging process. Thorne also offers several science-backed formulas that promote healthy aging from nutrient-rich NAD boosters to collagen powders so you can age better inside and out. Find the right formula for you by taking Thorne's Healthy Aging Quiz and get real recommendation from Thorne's medical team. Learn more by visiting thorne.com healthyaging. That's thorn dot healthyaging. And we're back. So now it's time to answer questions that have come in from our community. The first question that has come in is from a listener who asked, why did longevity merge with Thorn? So, Nathan, I'll turn that over to you. What why two companies becoming one?
1: Yeah. So it really came down to what our goals are with Thorn Health Tech. And what we're trying to do is to build a Integrated deep solution for healthy aging. And so, longevity as an AI platform and the knowledge that, that we were building there just made a lot more sense when you put all the pieces together. So, as we're working at Thorn Health Tech, trying to have this big integrated solution, right? We have 300 different products, but it's not just about what they are, it's about what is the health intelligence that's necessary to deploy them in the right way, the right person at the right time? And that's where longevity fits in. We also have you know, another company that we bought into this called uh, Drawbridge, you know, which will deliver at-home blood measurement devices and so forth. So there's all these pieces that we're putting together that to form this cohesive, unified approach to trying to give people the best possible data, information, and solutions in healthy aging. And those things needed to be rolled together.
0: In other words, it's not just about supplements anymore. It's the whole
1: deal. That's right. And that was really what Thorn Health Tech was about, which is Thorn is a, obviously an amazing uh, brand, but probably the highest quality supplement maker in the country, but that's not the ultimate goal of what we're doing. You know, the, goal, the goal is to extend health span and to do that in deep ways. And that's what the, the mergers are all about.
0: So uh, back to the aging topic, who are the oldest people, uh, the centenarians and above, and is there anything that they do uh, that they have in common? I mean, you know, I always hear these jokes about the woman who gets up and has a cigar and a whiskey for breakfast every day and lives to be 115, right? They exist, Uh, they
1: absolutely exist.
0: (laughs) It it totally exists, Uh, but are there there habits that they found in the research that are going to help you live that long?
1: There, there are. And if you're going to be one of those really oldest people, you, you probably have to both win the genetic lottery and, and the lifestyle
0: lifestyle thing,
1: but there are commonalities. The, the biggest factor that influences longevity, and it's quite interesting, but it's been reproduced in a number of different studies is social connection. Mm -hmm. People are connected into a community. That is the number one factor. Uh, the second biggest factor is probably diet calorie restriction, uh, not overeating is associated with longer lives pretty much across the board. They also did a study on and that's
0: eating less. That's not starving yourself.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's calorie restriction. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: But it doesn't have to be extreme.
1: Yeah. Like Roy
0: Walford, you know, the,
1: well, the, the quip on that obviously is, you know, is, is when you do, if you do calorie restriction, Either you'll live a lot longer, or it will feel like it. So, you know, so there's definitely trade-offs. Longevity is not the end-all be-all. Uh, but calorie yeah. restriction is associated with it. The other elements, though, that come into play when you study uh, centenarians, uh, two big factors that come up, which are not, not so obvious connected to lifestyle, are one, they have stem cells that appear to be younger. So they have, they have more regenerative capability. And there's a lot of interest in that, right? Altos Labs just was the biggest startup in history. They're starting with three billion dollars, so the, the most good. <laughs> the best funded startup in history, right? Which is about cellular regeneration, uh, which is really fascinating. Uh, and then the other element was that they have long telomeres, mm-hmm. and you know, there's a lot of debate about how you know much you can do about those, or if they're modifiable, or how predictive they are. But in the really long-lived, they do tend to have these longer telomeres, which are the ends of your DNA it's kind of junk at the end of your DNA so that it can as it gets broken down you're not hitting anything essential so it gives you a little more buffer but those are all things that are associated with the longest lived people
0: so that kind of segues into a question that comes up all the time what about dietary supplements what what supplement the person asked this what supplements can I take to live forever <laughs> yeah I love this question if you want to
1: and the and the optimism behind it one I will just do a slide aside on, on live forever, uh, just because it is a, a little bit of a, a hobby topic for me. We are very interested, you know, obviously in focus on biological age of how do you reduce aging? But I wanna be very specific about what that means. So if you graph the likelihood in any given year that you will die of some, or you will contract or die of some serious disease, as you get older, it just goes up. Every year, it's more and more likely. That's essentially what we mean by aging. Now I'll go back to my undergrad really quick, uh, which was, you know, in engineering. And I remember I was fascinated by this because in one of the early lectures, someone said uh, we were getting taught that light bulbs don't age. Right, Light bulbs have no aging. These are the old incandescent light bulbs. And what's meant by that is that a light bulb is just as likely to burn out on the first day you put it in. (laughs) (laughs) as it is on the 30,000th day. It makes no difference because it's actually related to the surge of electrical power. It has nothing to do with the filament wearing out from the electric flow. Mm -hmm. So that stuck with me, right? So that's what it means to be no aging. So one of the things I want to point out is that even if we were able to eliminate aging, which would have probably a bigger effect on human health than anything, it would be radically bigger than things like curing cancer. Uh, which would affect about two years of lifespan on if you did it, but the thing I do want to point out is that even if you eliminate aging and you make that curve flat, you're still infinity away from you know being immortal or living forever more, yeah. here's some some of you know a few of the aging researchers throwing out terms like that and it's yeah I, that's uh that's a whole whole different thing, but basically reducing that curve is something you can do. so what supplements are actually involved there? so the other preamble I'll give to this is there's basically a level of evidence that you can have around supplements and a level of evidence that you can't for a while. And that is for most of these supplements or all these supplements, we can't say today that they have an impact on human lifespan or health span because it will take a long time to see that because we live it could a long a time. It
0: be a 20 year study. We'll
1: know it in 20 years, yeah. so we won't have that. So, so when we say there's evidence behind these, what, what's meant by that? And there's some interesting papers basically arguing exactly this point in the scientific literature So what you can have is one, that you know that they increase health span and or lifespan across multiple animal systems. So we know Mm. that they do it in other systems. And then two, we have a mechanism of action and you can do human trials that show that that same mechanism of action happens in humans. And three, you have safety trials. So you know that they're safe, that they are doing the same function that we see in the animals, and that we know that it increased health spend and lifespan in the animals. That's what you can have today. And that's basically the level of evidence that's possible. So we'll go through the things, but that's what they have. So people should understand if you're looking at these things, you're basically saying, is that enough evidence for you or not? Mm-hmm. I take a bunch of these, but it's, you know, but I understand that, that that's the evidence, that's where it is, that's what, that's yep. what we today. So let's go through a few of those. So one major one uh, is that you lose NAD plus as you get older and NAD uh, can be boosted through supplementation, and we'll talk about those in just a minute. Boosting NAD has been shown to increase lifespan or health span across a number of different animal systems. Uh, it has been shown that it's safe, and so that, well, the primary um, compound that's been used so far is nicotinamide riboside. So nicotinamide riboside is a precursor and it's a small molecule and it can cross the membrane of the cell uh, and come in. And it's been shown that if you take nicotinamide riboside, you will increase NAD levels in your cell. So we know that it's past safety trials in humans. We know that it has the effects on health span and lifespan in animal models. So it, it hits all those buttons. Uh, there's also a lot of interest in NMN. NMN is not as extensively studied in humans. So it's a little bit behind on that standpoint. NMN is an interesting compound, certainly, and you can get a lot of the same benefits from NMN. And there is a whole debate around NR and NMN. In the cell, NMN is closer to NAD, so NR becomes NA, NMN becomes NAD. And if that were the end of the story, then you know, you would think maybe NMN. But the, the flip side, though, is that NMN does not cross the cell membrane. so
0: to get it inside the cell,
1: it doesn't get inside the cell. So outside of the cell, NMN essentially has to be converted to NR to then go into the cell to then be converted back into NMN and so forth. So, but those are both in the same, the same kind of family. Um, the reason I gave is, is the reason that, that we've focused on NR. If data switches and, you know, whatever, whatever we think is the best, that's the one we'll do, but that's, uh, that's where uh, it's at today. So other important supplements. So another one is quercetin and quercetin is really interesting because it is, Has been shown in a number of papers to be an anti-senolytic. So, senolytic is probably a term that a lot of people won't be familiar with. But what it means is, as you get older, you accumulate these kind of zombie-like, quasi-dead cells throughout your body, and you need to clear them. And quercetin has been shown, especially when it's in combination with a drug called dasatinib. But basically, you can use quercetin as a means for accelerating the clearance of senescent cells. And that's been shown in a number of studies. Uh, So quercetin is another one of of the big ones. Uh, Another compound that's uh, really useful is called berberine. So there's a lot of interest in a drug called metformin and metformin and berberine are analogs. They're very similar to each other. And metformin, it's actually fascinating because people, diabetics who take metformin get cancer at lower rates than people who don't have diabetes. And that opened up the eyes of a lot of us who were, whoa, that's okay, what's what's going yeah. on there?
0: Yeah. And so it you should, if you got diabetes, you probably have a higher risk of cancer.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you take so metformin
0: older, for your diabetes and it, lo- it goes lower than average. It goes lower than average, right,
1: exactly. So there's a lot of people that think, oh, maybe everyone should be doing this or a lot of, yeah. and uh, there is a uh, really well-known uh, researcher in the field, Nir Barzilai, uh, here in New York, who's running a trial on this uh, called TAME. Now, berberine has essentially the same effect on metabolic markers that metformin does, and it actually has a better effect on, lipid markers than does metformin. So berberine is a natural product analog for metformin, very similar, and by the same kind of reasoning is believed uh, could have a major impact on on health span and or lifespan. And in our biological age studies, I'll just say that controlling glucose, uh, which berberine is, is really useful for, was the number one effect on biological age. Diabetes increased it by six years. That's the most of any, any of those. Wow. Those, those are all things that have, anyway. We, we could go on about a bunch of others, but those are all areas that could make, or uh, different supplements that, that can make, uh, could make a difference.
0: I wish we could get the, uh, some of the top anti-aging researchers like near Barzilai to take supplements a little bit more seriously, because I, I think the literature is there. It really deserves more study.
1: Yeah. Well, and one thing I will say, you know, I was a researcher, you know, in aging, you know, funded by the NIH. I was in this thing called the Longevity Consortium, which is the largest uh, NIH investment in aging, I believe. Uh, And what I'll say is a lot of leading researchers are, especially in aging, are quite open to supplements. You know, I I wondered that as I was first getting into this space, because I didn't come from the, you know, a background in studying supplements, you know, as I got into this space and, you know, we've had some really good conversations with a lot of uh, the leading uh, researchers. And there is, there's a lot of interest in nicotinamide riboside. There's a lot of interest in quercetin. There's a lot of interest in Berber. And there are actually quite a lot of studies. There does tend to be a default on long-term clinical trials a little bit towards uh, towards drugs. Um, yeah. your, your win at the end is bigger because they're, if it's for a proprietary drug, they're radically more expensive which we could get yep. a whole other topic, which maybe we'll get into at some point. Yeah, yeah leave, if you have a drug like, like rapamycin. That, 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 could, that could be another episode. where we talk.
0: Yeah, if you have a drug like rapamycin, then, you know, you can make a patented variant on it. I think there is one, Everolimus or something that, you know, is quite expensive.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
0: Well, I think that's all we have time for this week. Uh, Dr. Price. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If people want to know what you're up to, uh, how do they find out about your work? How do they follow you? Do you have a website or a specific place they can go to, to know what your latest publications are? Sure. Um, so
1: if you want, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's at ISB Nathan Price uh, on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Uh, I post quite a lot on, on LinkedIn. You can find me there. Or if there are other th- uh, reasons to reach out directly, uh, you can uh,
0: you can do so for that too if, uh, if it's relevant. But
1: those are the, those are the channels that uh, are probably the easiest for people to see.
0: Terrific. Well, folks, that was Dr. Nathan Price, the Chief Scientific Officer at Thorne Health Tech, talking about the hallmarks of aging and what you can do about it. As always, thank you everyone for listening and please tune in again. Thanks for listening to the Thorne Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to @thornhealth. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.